Welcome back to The Julie Norman Show, a podcast on politics, ethics, and current affairs. My guest today is Tony McAleer. He's the author of the book, The Cure for Hate, a former white supremacist journey from violent extremism to radical compassion. He's also the co-founder of the nonprofit organization, Life After Hate, and he's essentially made it his mission since exiting to help other people leave hate groups. Tony and I met last year at a workshop through a network we're both a part of on preventing violent extremism. And that network focuses a lot on talking with so-called formers, that is people like Tony who were very much involved in different kinds of extremist groups, right-wing, left-wing, white supremacists, jihadi, gangs, and pretty much trying to understand how individuals ended up joining certain groups, why and how they exited, and how we might be able to prevent other people from joining or help other people leave. So Tony spent about 15 years in neo-Nazi and white supremacist movements. He started as a skinhead, as he'll talk about in the show, and he became deeply involved in the white Aryan resistance or war movement, and essentially rose through the ranks to become a leader. And, and this was during the time in the 90s when the internet was first becoming a thing, and Tony was one of the Uh, One of the people who was really engaged in bringing white nationalist propaganda into online spaces. So that's something we touch on a bit today as well. Uh, Since disengaging, Tony co-founded the organization Life After Hate. It's an organization that was created with other formers as well. And the organization essentially seeks to help other people exit from hate groups. Tony spent countless hours as a coach and as a mentor And he's also worked really closely with law enforcement and advising government agencies in the United States, in his home country of Canada, in Australia, New Zealand, and helping them try and tackle the rising problem of violent white supremacist groups. I've wanted to have Tony on the show for a while, but I think the show is especially timely now. We're recording this a few weeks after the Capitol riot. And in the U.S. right now, there's certainly a renewed focus on so-called right-wing violent extremism. Some might even say that the Trump's presidency was bookended in some ways by two events that at least highlighted the presence of or lifted the veil a bit on right-wing violent extremist groups. The first being the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville in 2017, and then the Capitol riot a few weeks ago. At the same time, I think it's important to point out that hate groups and white supremacist groups certainly aren't new. They didn't start with Trump. They won't go away when he's out of office. So in this episode, in addition to hearing from Tony about his own experience, I really wanted to get his take on what's going on today. Is it new? Is it different? Is is the trajectory different from what we thought it was before? And also, what are we getting wrong? And what should we actually be trying to do about it? So in the first half of this episode, I pretty much turned the mic over to Tony. He has a very compelling story about why he joined a white supremacist group, why he got out, and how since leaving, he's been working in various capacities to help others exit hate groups. But then in the second part, we get into more of what's going on now in the U.S. and where we see everything going. So this was a really interesting conversation for me. I hope it will be for you, too. So now here's my conversation with Tony McAleer. 
So Tony, welcome so much to the podcast. We've met a couple of different times and I've heard you share your story a number of times in, in person and also in film and on TV. But just for people who are listening today and don't know your background, can you just start with just saying how you got drawn into what you've described as violent white supremacist organizations, what kept you in and why you eventually left? Sure, sure. Um, you know, my life started where a lot of lives start in, uh, you know, childhood and we come into the world and um, nobody's born a neo-Nazi. And I had a pretty affluent, privileged upbringing. I had, my father was a psychiatrist, uh, we lived in a nice house, I went to private school and all material wants were were met. Um, my father was a was a workaholic. That was his way of of uh, showing love. Um, wasn't the way I needed to to feel it, but um, you know he loved us quite a bit. And I was sort of this um, in in that ask your audience to let's think about to to think about who they were at the age of three or four when they came into the world. And and little Tony was this bright curious, mischievous, stubborn, defiant, sensitive little guy and we come into the world and you know the world happens to us and we we put up walls and we shut down feeling and we do different things in order to feel safe. And when I was 10, uh, I walked in on my father with another woman and that really rocked rocked my world and and um, I started acting out at school. I went from an AB student to a CD student. And the, the school tried everything to, to motivate me. Uh, lots of carrots. And when the carrots didn't work, they resorted to the stick. And if I didn't get an, uh, a test on uh, an A or a B on major tests and assignments, I was marched down to the office and, and caned. And I think still to this day, um, going down to that office, and I remember waiting outside and always always wanting you know one or two minutes more before the teacher came and I don't know if any of your listeners can relate to this but um, when you know something really bad's about to happen and there's nothing you can do about it that, that that's what happened and and you know the other one is I had to bend over the desk before I got hit on the rear end with a with a yardstick was uh, this is gonna hurt me more than it's gonna hurt you I'm not sure who that was meant to comfort, but it wasn't me. And I think all those times at the office, I think even to this day, I don't think I've ever felt as powerless as I did in that moment and over and over and over again. And that didn't work. It just my defiance kept kept going. And in the end, I had to leave the all boys Catholic private school and I went to boarding school in England where by then I'd uh, gone from listening to Elton John and Queen to the Clash and the Sex Pistols as the my anger was playing out in the music I was listening to. That's what vibed with me. And uh, got involved sort of in punk music and met skinheads in England. And when I came back to, to Vancouver, I met, you know, skinheads. I went my very first punk show thing. It was just, just before my 16th birthday with Black Flag with Henry Rollins. And I'm standing outside with my ticket waiting to go in. And these two skinheads come up to me and I'm wearing Doc Martens from England. And they go, uh, what size feet you wear? And the reason they're asking is because they're going to take them if they're the right size. I lied and said my feet were smaller than they were. And they said, uh, 
they won't fit you anyways. And they kind of walked around the corner. Those two guys became my best friends. Uh, my bullying survival strategy was befriend the bully, become the bully. And um, I was safe when I was with them. And in order to have their protection, I had to have their respect. And in order to have their respect, I had to commit all the same acts of violence that they did. Although not as good as they did. I <laughs> didn't have violence in my household. That, um, so it, it didn't come naturally to me, but you know, I became competent. Uh, so and I just want to be clear here. That I don't blame anything on my childhood. Uh, the reason I share that stuff about my childhood is so that you understand the lens through which I made my choices. Everything I did, I chose to do. But, but why do we make those choices? What <clears throat> what benefit do we get from those choices? And and I got a sense of power. Nobody was physically afraid of me before then. And I think that sense of power coming from that sense of absolute powerlessness was quite um, quite seductive. And the more I hung out with these guys and the more I got involved, the more people were afraid. The more further to the right and further into neo-Nazi movements I went, the more notorious our reputation, the more people were afraid. So I got power when I felt powerless and I got, um, I got a, attention when I felt invisible. And I got acceptance when I felt unlovable. And I think it's these core psychological needs that can make these groups um, feel attractive. We can make a whole, there's a whole series of ways that which we, we deal with these deficits. Um, and I, I explained, and I'm not the one to come up with it, but toxic shame is, describes that feeling you have about yourself at deep in your subconscious identity belief system that you're unlovable that you're powerless that you're weak that you're less than you know you feel less than human and, and we go out into the world to prove the lie wrong right we go out in the world to present ourselves to hide the lie from the rest of the world and so we think that the rest of the world can see it so we project ourselves to be something that we're not the other thing we do with toxic shame is it's the it's the dirty secret we keep from ourselves and we internalize behavior with substance abuse, um, cutting, eating disorders. There's all different ways in which we distract ourselves from um, that feeling gnawing away in our in our subconscious. So, and that when you look at the the, the stories that I've heard from from people, um, the vast majority I'm not going to say 100%, but the vast majority they've got some kind of emotional trauma. I'd say the vast majority of people have emotional trauma. Yeah. And yeah. it's part of the human condition. Um, not that that any of this is is an excuse, um, but understanding it is the first step to healing and dealing with it. And so for me, um, I built a reputation went just from uh, you know skinhead on the street to wearing a suit and tie and and taking a, a, a leadership role in public speaking and media interviews and such like that. And, and the, you know, it's tiring being that angry all the time. It takes an incredible amount of energy. And when you surround yourselves with negative people, you know, life doesn't work that well. And you're not, you know, in flow. It's almost impossible to be in flow 
around that much negativity, negative energy. And after a while, I was I was certainly tired and 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 somewhat disillusioned. And and uh, um, my girlfriend of three months, you know, told me she was pregnant. And I had nine months later, uh, my baby daughter was born. And 15 months after that, my son was born. And that was the catalyst for for real change. And and so you know, what what is it about children? And you know, for me. I was operating completely from my head. Um, I, w- I was disconnected from my heart, you know. And we we do that to in order to feel safe to avoid pain. But the love of little children is so infectious, you know. And and the key thing is, children are safe to love. They're not capable of rejection. They're not capable of ridicule. Um, they're not capable of shaming. Um, not until they're about 13, and that's all they want to do for a few years. <laughs> but so that provided me a safe place to allow that journey to go from my uh, my ego. I was at my head so far at my ego, I was a complete narcissist at that point to start the beginning of the thawing of my of my heart. And I got to parent my kids the way that I always wanted to be parented so I was very involved in everything they did and and had the time for them that my dad didn't have the time for me and uh, that began a that began a, a, a thawing process and you know that was my first real lesson in compassion because if if toxic shame is the feeling of less than the antidote to shame is compassion and through compassion um, we hold a mirror up to someone and allow them to see their humanity reflected back at them and they can start to the process of rehumanization and that's what my children did to me before they could even speak the word compassion um, I saw my self reflected my humanity reflected back at me through their eyes when I couldn't see it if I just looked in the mirror um, so that began um, process it wasn't a, a come to Jesus road to Damascus mom, uh, moment but it began a process so by the time they were four and six I was a full-time single father and that you know sort of forced me into into a sort of a choice and my mom sort of gave me the the second lesson in compassion my mom my parents despised what I did my father was bombed by the Germans during World War two so it's a funny way to be angry at your father is to have a poster of the guy who sent the bombs <laughs> on your bedroom wall. Um, and it was socially embarrassing for my uh, my parents and the social circles they were in. Um, but my mom never gave up on me. My relationship with my dad never recovered. But my mom, her love for me was unconditional, but her relationship with me was very conditional. And I needed her help to raise these two children and so she put she put conditions on that that I had to step away and had to step down from doing media interviews and she applied that leverage and and with that came the uh, second lesson in compassion that I learned and that compassion when it's accompanied by healthy boundaries and consequences when it's accompanied with accountability it's a very very powerful tool and and it's often seen as weak because it it can come without those things it's it's 
nowhere near as strong as when it has those things. That's where compassion really is powerful. And so I ended up transitioning um, to a single father when they were four and six. And at, in the 1990s, single dads were like unicorns. And I got all kinds of pats on the back, like, oh, my God, you know, you're single dad. That's so good. You know, and it's like it, it felt actually it was so unfair because I knew so many single moms at the time that got scorned. They didn't get celebrated because they were single, single mothers. Um, but in that, I was able to transition. It gave me an opportunity for a new identity as to who, how I saw myself in the world, because before that, and then the world of white supremacy it wasn't just what I believed. It was who I was. It was my identity. And this is the challenge, is identity and ideology become intertwined. And if you want to challenge someone's ideology, you you end up challenging their identity, and nobody responds well to that. Mm-hmm. And so I was able to develop an identity where I got attention, acceptance, approval, um, and, and a feeling, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say power, but it's certainly, I wasn't powerless. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not power in the same way that I was experiencing it in the movement, but I got, was getting those things in a healthy way. And that really helped my, my transition. So, you know, when we help people leave these movements, what's very important is we help them build an identity, who they are, whether it's, uh, you know, a skill, a career, or or something. They have to build a separate identity um, from where they're at. It's crucial to their um, recovery. But in those two lessons of compassion and, and that healing and growth that I was experiencing, I never dealt with um, I never dealt with the underlying wounds that that made that movement um, attractive to me in the first place. And so that didn't come till about seven years after I left the movement. And, and I got my first lesson, my third lesson, sorry, in, in compassion. And I'd started a new career as a financial advisor. And it's all part of this new identity that uh, was happening for me. And, and I was doing lots of um, workshops on ego and getting out of, getting out of your own way and, and law of attraction and, personal growth and that kind of thing to, uh, at the time I was doing it sort of for materialistic reasons to earn more money and to, you know, have a life of affluence and abundance and and all that kind of stuff. And the guy who was teaching these courses, it was introduced by a friend. Um, he was from Manchester. I'm from Liverpool. He was about 10 years older and we bonded on quirky English things like Benny Hill and Monty Python and eighties pop music. Um, Rick Astley and uh, <laughs> stuff like that. Rick Astley and Wham. And um, and my life started to really improve as I started to sort of take these lessons and and um, and, and things on it. I'd also started meditation around the same time. And after about eight months, I'd done all his courses and my relationships were improving. Um, you know, because up until this point, I'd left the movement, but the movement hadn't left me. I was still a jerk. I still drank too much. I still used my English, something that I perfected at boarding school. Um, the way of putting people down in a very humorous way, with, and they don't necessarily 
know it <laughs> and and sort of using the crowd as a weapon to humiliate people. Um, I was very good at that, and I'm still doing that. And and so the, the these childhood wounds were still active in my life. They're just active in a different different way. And so a friend of mine for my birthday gives me you know an envelope, and I open up the envelope, and it's it's a gift certificate for a one-on-one counseling session with this uh, guy Dov. And I go, great, you know, who doesn't want therapy for their birthday, right? Best birthday <laughs> ever. Yay. So I go into that first session and uh, it's first therapy session or counseling sessions I've ever had. And I tell them, you know, why, um, why I'm angry at my dad and, you know, and, you know, a little bit about my mom and, you know, all, all the stuff that, you know, sort of went on in my childhood. And, and I get to the part where, you know, do I tell him the rest? Do I tell him about being a neo-Nazi and a skinhead and all of that stuff? And and I was terrified too because, you know, over the previous eight months, I've got to know this guy. We were we were friends. Um, I really valued his his friendship. And when people generally found out about my past, it was the end of the friendship. Often, it was the end of an entire social circle. Once I was hiding from my past at that time, you know, for fear of people discovering it. And he goes, you know what? What's wrong? What, whatever, whatever it is, just, just say it. It's okay, mate. It's safe. And I'm staring at the carpet and hoping it's going to give me some revelation that'll get me out of this very uncomfortable situation. And I'm, just, you know, do I do it? Do I not do it? And he goes, mate, come on. You look, you look like you're trying to swallow three golf balls. Just let it out. And I said, you know, to hell with it. And in a moment of the most vulnerable moment, you know, I've ever had. I just let it out and, to- and told him everything. And the more I told him, the more he starts to smile. And the more he starts to smile, the more pissed off I'm getting. I'm like, here I am bearing my soul in my first counseling session. This guy's practically laughing at me. And I go, look at him and I go, what's so funny? And he leans in with a huge grin on his face and goes, you know, I'm Jewish, right? I'm like... Of course, of course, and, and I, you know, I fell back in my chair, you know, and my cheeks burning with with shame. Um, you know, here's this man that loves me, wants to help me, wants to heal me, wants to see the best for me and my family, and, and here I am, burning in shame, knowing that I'd once advocated the annihilation of him and his people. And he said, that's what you did. That's not who you are. I see little Tony. And, you know, I started crying. I started bawling my eyes out. And, you know, if if he could learn to love me, why couldn't I learn to love myself? And that began, a, uh, we're still friends to this day, and he's still a, <clears throat> a coach and a mentor, but that began the next five or six years. I went through about a thousand hours of one-on-one and um, and group counseling and and stuff like that to really get to the the root and heal the the underlying uh, wounds and put me in a place where I was able to be ready to um, go public with with my recovery and and in 2011 I helped co-found Life After Hate and sort of the the last 
I left life after he a year ago, but you know, for the next uh, almost ten years, um, was at life after hate, mm-hmm. helping other people. You know, if, if I can make it out, and there was no there was no exit group for for me, and then the other co-founders, it was the same. You know, maybe we can we can help people leave and and find those people lost in the wilderness who want to get out of it but just don't know how. Mm-hmm. You know, as human beings, we can always help people who are just one or two steps behind us. And the further steps we make in our healing and our recovery and our journey, um, the more we can help other people. Yeah, and I want to ask you more about life after hate, but I just want to come back to a few things that you said and just ask you a bit more about it. First, just thanks as always for just sharing your experience and just being so open and honest about everything. It's always like super appreciated. Um, I mean, one thing that was interesting to me in some of the, the groups that we've both been in are what you mentioned before, and I think you wrote at one point that the need to be involved in something meaningful comes before the ideology in terms of people joining different kinds of extremist groups, be it right-wing, left-wing, jihadi, even gangs, cults. And I was wondering what you said to the sense that everyone in their life kind of feels this, often driven by like grievance or trauma, but not everyone ends up seeking out that release through or that sense of power through a hate group or an extremist group. So what, what I guess, why, why in kind of the human quest to find something meaningful, do some end up going towards a group, towards an ideology, but, but not others? Is that, does that make sense? Yeah, no, absolutely. That, that's a, that's a fantastic question. And, and I think there's an element of serendipity in all of this and it's sometimes it's um you know a person you meet at the bus stop or it's sometimes it's just who you meet and i flirted with the far left before i before i got involved in the in the in the far right and and it can be you know i think a lot of people struggle with toxic shame it's just whether we decide to externalize it or internalize it right you know, and, and um, John Bradshaw wrote the book, Healing the Shame That Binds Us. Fantastic book. If you want to, want to understand toxic shame, he's the guy. And he was an addictions guy. Um, and so for him, shame, toxic shame was the root of all addiction. So that, and, and that's the internalized shame piece. Um, Dr. James Gilligan, who's a, a forensic psychiatrist in the California prison system, um, wrote a book called uh, Violence Reflections on a National Epidemic. He said, all violence is an attempt to convert shame to self-esteem. And that he, he never saw an act of violence in prison that wasn't rooted in humiliation. So that's, you know, externalizing it. So the same factors, someone can join a gang. Mm. Someone can join an extremist group. Someone can be an addict. These are all different ways of dealing with these sort of universal traumas that, that, that people have. And, you, you know, and often it's the emotional trauma. It's, it's the, the scars heal from physical trauma. It's the emotional mark that's more permanent until we, until we deal with it. So, you know, the University of Maryland, uh, their START program, Studies of Terrorism and Responses to Terrorism, 
they did a study and found that the the most the number one correlated factor in the history of someone joining a violent extremist group is childhood trauma. Um, and I think you take it a step beyond that because you childhood trauma creates toxic shame, um, whether it's physical or sexual. But you can have also toxic shame from emotional trauma. I think it's the emotional trauma that really does the damage. Um, but it's, it's, sometimes it's just what you fall into, you know, and, and you know, my anger led me to punk rock and punk rock led me to skinheads and skinheads led me to like to wasn't um and, and when you come across it you know especially at the more organized level um these older leaders um who i sort of put them in sort of father figure roles and and gave all my power to them um they knew exactly how to manipulate that they knew exactly you know when to give you the pats on the back and to you know make you feel special and all of, all of that kind of stuff um and, and wanted and and belonging so it's this is there's an element of serendipity to it mm -hmm. you know it's not uh you know white supremacist groups going to attract every young man with toxic shame it's it, it's not but there's mm -hmm. going to be um, you know, maybe a kid plays a certain video game and and because of that video game is in a certain chat room and in that certain chat room, maybe there's a guy who talks about the stuff and, and, it, and it happens. It's sort of, it, we sort of can fall into it, but it, 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 it's, the recruiters know how and what to, to put out messages that are attractive to disenfranchised um, young men searching for identity, searching for meaning. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in my work on this in the Middle East um, with extremist groups also, it's so much of that relationship elements and um, right, the recruiters kind of knowing how to fill that void, like you said. I wanted to ask you though, you mentioned chat rooms and I remember you've said, talked before about how during your time in the movement and when that was just, when the internet was becoming a thing, um, that that's a thing where some of your focus was. How how much do you see the role of online spaces of social media in particular playing into this? Is that is that overstated or is that a core area where a lot of these relationships actually develop and form? Well, I mean, you know, that has, has computers changed how business is done or why business is done? Not so much. It changes the speed of business. Technology changes, and, and sure, there's there's disruptions, but um, I think that the technology has really changed the speed and and changed the um, access to people. But the tactics, the what's make what the the human psychological drivers behind it all, I don't think have have, have changed. Mm -hmm. And you know, when I first got involved, you you know, I remember going to my first meeting that was, you know, for free speech and anti-immigration. It was it was it was sort of on the mellow end of the white supremacist movement, you know, with pensioners who just, you know, pining for the old days. Um, and it was like, well, there's probably police informants here and there's protesters outside and, you know, I'm going to get on a list by coming here. So there's, there's just sort of psychological barriers to entry mm -hmm. that existed, um, as I like to say, in the before time. <laughs> uh, 
and you know with the internet um you know sure sure the police informants and getting on a list is all still there but you don't you're not quite so aware of it um and it's just a click of a button to take you to that that meeting and and the um at the beginning the internet offered anonymity now it's the illusion of anonymity um but those psychological barriers are, are taken away and I, you know used to order for a book or a videotape when videotapes were still a thing um, and it would take you know six weeks to come and then you you know order something else and and this process of radicalization took months if not years now that with the speed of information you can binge watch an ideology in a weekend mm-hmm. you know and and there's there's everything is at your fingertips you know dylan roof started off with black on white crime mm-hmm. and then went down the the algo rabbit hole uh, to to find everything that he was that he was looking for or what it, what the algo thought he was looking for. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I, I want to come back to some of kind of current stuff that's been happening, but I, I just wanted to ask you a little bit more about life after hate and where I guess where your focus is there because I know the organization has done a lot with prevention as well as with helping people exit. And with exiting, I was wondering if your focus is more on the disengagement side, like having people just step away from the violent behavior element, or if it's more on the de-radicalization side, the actual um, stepping away from the ideology and the beliefs. And I think you kind of told your own story in those different stages as well. Yeah. And I haven't been there for a year, so I, uh, but I can tell you I was executive director from 2014 to 2017 and uh, board chair from 2017 till when I left and I and I don't think a whole lot has changed in, in focus and um, we we were lucky enough to partner with organizations that had the capacity to help disillusion people you know in that in that um, disengagement stage and and so we we're able to do a, you know, a, we got a VR film funded um, and we're involved in a number of initiatives. But the core offer of, of what Life After Hate has is, um, is sort of the counseling and uh, peer group support. So there was a Facebook support group. You know, the challenge in leaving these movements um, is that you know, you leave your entire social circle behind. Getting through that first phase of loneliness, I call it the void. You know, you don't have a social circle. And you don't have an identity, to be honest. If you've given up that identity, you know, when you create your new identity is when you can really attract a new social circle. So we created a social group online of people that either were in, in the void or had gone through the void and wanted to, so there was, you weren't alone. There was a community of people in the void for you to make that process um, easier. Um, The goal of Life After Hate, I think it was um, towards helping people live um, compassionate lives and and sort of contributing to society. Um, I'm horribly paraphrasing it, but so disengagement, it's okay, it's better than engagement, but it's not the end goal. But we encourage people always to keep taking another step forward. The, um, 
there's always another layer to the onion of self-knowledge and uh, that journey never ends. It, it, it can for some people. Um, for me, it never ends. Um, so would, will we be satisfied if people stop at just disengagement? Like, okay, I'm not beating people up anymore and I'm not going to rallies. Um, I mean, it, it's it's the first step, but it, mm-hmm. it, in, in the at life after hate, it's not, it was never the last step. You're listening to The Julie Norman Show. I did just want to kind of place this in the current context because we're now speaking a few weeks after the the Capitol riot. Um, Trump's presidency, I would say, was bookended by that on one end and some would say by the Charlottesville Unite the Right um, rally at the, the early time of his term. Obviously, white supremacy and hate groups didn't start or end with Trump, and nor would I say are you know most of his his supporters, even everyone at these rallies, were were members of those groups. But those events definitely made those groups more visible for a lot of American audiences, at least, and kind of lifted the veil, so to speak, for I think the strength of such movements um, that that many thought were a bit um, were maybe a bit more more fringe or ineffective or what have you. So. I was just wondering, just first, what was your reaction when you saw some of these events unfold? You know, with the Capitol riots, I, I think political violence is wrong in in any context. I think there was definitely agitators that took advantage of that situation. There's accelerationists as what's there's definitely enough white supremacist agitators to go around to that can whip a crowd up and you know create that that sort of siege of the uh, of the Capitol. And there was people that, that were in the Capitol with definite malintent. And then there were people that were, you know, had bewildered looks on the face and, you know, posing in front of statues and like, like, you know, they didn't know what to do what they got when they got there. It was, mm-hmm. it was sort of, it was, it was really a bizarre, bizarre thing, but it's, it really shows how fractured the, the you know the country is there's still yeah I, I think there's never an excuse to do to do what they did but I, I think it's showing it's it's showing how the country is dividing into further further um, extremes and the 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 rioting and damage done in the summer uh, you know for six months before um, is the flip reflection of that as well. And I think uh, I think we need to look, take a step back, and look at everything, um, and and get out of the myopic. It's it's them, it's them, it's them. I think there's uh, an awful lot of violence and destruction and and intolerant ideas that come out of both sides. I think we re- we need to recognize that and and not just think that uh, it's that side that does it and our side's fine. Yeah, I've heard you say that before. That you right, you see dehumanization, I think, happening on both sides, and that um, even the propensity of the left to argue for violence to deal with the right is also dangerous. And um, and I thought but that violence was violence begets violence, right? Political violence begets political violence, and it, it doesn't stop. It just makes it it makes it worse. It, it's it's not good, and it's growing. And do you and so do you see it growing? Do you think we're seeing something different or new now, or a different? pace or trajectory for it i think that if they impeach trump and prevent him from running again 
you'll definitely see it grow. When you take away people's voice, see the challenge is it, how it got to this, I think, is that the people identify, and there's 74 million of them, identify with Trump so much that an attack on him is an attack on them. And if they feel that their voice has been removed, I think it's a very, very dangerous thing because when you take people's legitimate legitimate voice and power away, you force them into the illegitimate. Yeah, I think the, the... country has to be very careful how it how it proceeds because you could radicalize an awful lot more and I the point that you just made I just wanted to ask you about that a little bit more like how how can the new administration or other officials that you've worked on advise how can they target racist extremism or kind of these more extremist elements without being seen as attacking the right itself by by attacking those extremist elements for what they've done, that's that's illegal. And there's lots of laws on the books to to do that. And I think we have to be careful. Um, the restrictions on free speech and silencing and banning people, and it, it you know it may seem like in the moment emotionally it's the right thing to do. But I think if you if you're going to ban candidates and and silence people from expressing themselves you're sort of really stepping very quickly into a dystopian uh, a dystopian world. And um, I, I'm always, I always like to think two or three or four moves ahead. And I mm-hmm. always think of the law of unintended consequences. And we have to be careful what seems emotionally right in the moment um, and expedient. And I think the challenge is, is, as a society, we've become so addicted to outrage the news cycle is about creating outrage, you know, and, and outrage at Trump and and all of that. But when we allow ourselves to have that outrage triggered in us, we're actually giving up our power to those that are creating the outrage. And I think that that outrage can be manipulated into, um, you know, Noam Chomsky talked about manufacturing consent. I think if he was to put out another book now, he should call it manufacturing outrage. <laughs> And that manufacturing outrage is the new version of of consent. And if you can get people outraged enough, they'll agree to anything to to remove that that object that they've been told they need to d- despise and hate. And but in the process of doing it, when when that target of outrage and and um, is is half of the country, how can it possibly get better? It, it can't. Absolutely. And yeah, I mean, that's been something I'm just trying to wrestle with lately with um, yeah, the conflation of a lot of things right now in the United States and um, even a lot of the terminology that's being used with domestic terrorism and violent extremism, right-wing extremism, everything kind of circulating a lot, again, around Trump and the Capitol riot, but trying to kind of tease those apart and I think being a bit more, as you said, targeted and where we're trying to have policies or interventions or approaches to really actually tackle the right thing. And um, as you said, some of the more reactive measures that might actually have, that might actually backfire, you know, pragmatically as well as for some of the reasons you've been saying. Um, well, talking about new legislation for domestic terrorism and, and um, my fear is that domestic terror becomes, you know, the, the, war, on, the war on terror part two. 
that the, the public will is there now through this manufactured outrage to accept a new version of a domestic version of the Patriot Act, mm-hmm. um, which eroded so many um, rights and freedoms, but you know people demanded it at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you know people people always assume you know it, it's like the free speech thing, you know, and they you know first you know we need to ban neo-Nazi and white supremacist stuff online. Who doesn't agree that that stuff shouldn't be online? But now it's it's anyone who contradicts the WHO. It's it now it's become anything that threatens democracy, which is that that's nebulous. Now we're beyond hate, and now the you know it's if you disagree with with the orthodoxy of anything, you mm-hmm. you can be silenced. Or I think we need to pay careful attention uh, in in times like these because it has. It has so much opportunity to go incredibly wrong. I guess I just feel like there, there's so there's so much focus in the U.S. right now on right wing extremism. I think Biden has kind of review um, kind of happening, and uh, there's just so much. Almost every day, there's a headline about it. What what are people getting wrong about it? Like, what are some of the the myths or the stereotypes or just things that that kind of the the mainstream narrative right now is just getting wrong about? Um, about these kinds of movements, about right-wing extremism? I, well, I think they're absolutely magnifying the reality of the threat. You know, I know people that were expecting mass atrocities to happen, you know, around election time and around Trump leaving and things like that. And, you know, certainly the events at the Capitol were certainly distasteful, but they weren't mass atrocities. And I think I think we have to be careful with the information that we put in our in our heads. Because here, here, here's the challenge: when we live in this state of fear, and that state of fear can be addictive. That's what I say. You know, we're we're um, we've become addicted to conflict, and I think that addiction, that that addiction to outrage, mm-hmm. that state of outrage. Um, I think we have we have to be very careful because, you know, it's bad for our health, and people. Like they've been whipped up into this state of fear and, and fear is toxic to the body. I say to people, you know, what are you putting in? What are you allowing to put in your head? Right. And 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 what power are you giving up when you feed into the someone else's outrage, you know, to, to dial you into outrage? Yeah. Yeah. We absolutely have to stay aware and stay, stay aware and awake to what's what's going on. And these things are a threat. Um, but I think that they've overstated. I, I think we have to be uh, aware of, you know, in, in society, it's we have the middle, uh, and this happened in Germany. We have the middle, and then we have the outer edges. And the outer edges, uh, the extreme outer edges, is like a tornado. And that tornado is growing and growing. And it will, if not put in check somehow, will consume the middle. You know, we have to be we have to be careful that we don't allow so that we don't end up in a situation where it is your only choice is two extremes. Um, I usually end with asking for a book recommendation and I'll certainly link to your book, The Cure for Hate. And you've, you've mentioned several other books as well. Is there any other books that just have had an influence on you either related to what we've been talking about or anything else? I'm quite a spiritual person. You know, that's a, that's sort of the, uh, often the basis for um, for a lot of my 
my worldview, um, not religious, but spiritual. So I'll throw I'll throw something spiritual out there, and I'd say a book called The Kabbalion. Kabbalion is a sort of seven spiritual laws of the universe uh, from Hermes Trismegustus. And those truths I find, it's almost like a seed truth because it shows up in all different religions. It's, it's interesting. So, And it helps me to, uh, it actually it really helps me deal with um, and process living in a turbulent world like this. Tony, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And uh, yeah, it's just always a pleasure to hear from you. And like I said, I'll link to your your book and the new film in the show notes. But thank you so much as always. Thank you once again to Tony McAleer. If you're interested in learning more about Tony's story, you can check out his book, The Cure for Hate, A Former White Supremacist Journey from Violent Extremism to Radical Compassion. You have been listening to The Julie Norman Show. If you like the podcast, please, please just take two seconds to subscribe. Give it a rating on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts these days. If you have any questions, comments, feedback, or guest suggestions, please feel free to DM me on Twitter at Dr. Julie Norman 2 Thank you for listening. Take care, stay well, and tune in again next time.